As Christians, in our increasingly skeptical and at times even hostile culture, it's important that we know how to explain what we believe and defend those beliefs with good reasons. The encouraging news is that making the case for Christianity really isn't as hard as we often assume it is, and many unbelievers are more open to the truths of Christianity than we might expect. In our interview today, I'm talking with Neil Shenvey, a theoretical chemist and apologist, about why we should not stop advocating for the truthfulness of what we believe, even in our post-truth age. We also discuss why so many atheistic arguments are surprisingly weak, and how God used a book by C.S. Lewis to bring Neil to faith in an unexpected way. And no, it wasn't mere Christianity. Neil is the author of Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway podcast. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. So today we're going to talk about apologetics. Uh, This, for some people, energizing, exciting topic. For other people, maybe intimidating and uh, fear-inducing kind of issue. Uh, I want to get into some of those dynamics, actually, as we go on. But I wanted to start with something that you say early in your book. You write, when discussion wanders into the area of religion... Otherwise calm and sensible people seem to lose their ability to think rationally or to use lowercase letters, which I just found such a perfect summary of uh, the way that uh, discussions about God so often go in our culture today. And I think anyone who's talked about God with non-believers, either around a dinner table, maybe at a holiday or on Twitter or on Facebook, they're going to they're gonna resonate with what you just said there. So I guess my first question then, uh, something that I think we sometimes hear in our culture today, even from Christians, um, is traditional apologetics actually helpful today? Should Christians uh, really be trying to engage in apologetics like that, or should we really just focus on loving and serving other people and being kind of good, quiet witnesses in our own personal lives? Yeah, I think you often hear that, quote, falsely attributed to Francis Assisi, I think, of, uh, you know, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. And I've heard many pastors say, no, you have to use words because the gospel is a message. It's information. Uh, It's not solely information, but there's an informational component. And so no matter how kindly you live, no matter how charitable you are, uh, that won't convey the message that Jesus Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And, you know, there, another side of that is there are lots of very kind, amicable, friendly, generous Mormons and Buddhists and atheists. So that, that doesn't sell, tell you whether their beliefs are true or false. And so we have to be prepared to defend our beliefs rationally and intellectually and say they're not just good for me, they're actually true for everyone. And that's threatening, obviously, but it's the fact. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I want to get into those concepts of even truth uh, mm-hmm. that, that often seem questioned in our culture today, and maybe even like uh, the question doesn't necessarily always even compute what is true. Uh, but, but before we get into that, oh, kind of going back to that issue of is apologetics actually necessary and helpful more generally, uh, in, in the book you talk about your own journey to Christ and recount how uh, as a college student there was a time that you were walking through 
you know, this, the college union or something. And there was a Christian group that had set up a table with some books on it, free books they were giving away. They had a Bible there, which you ignored. Uh, they had two books by C.S. Lewis, though, and you picked those up and you read them. One was Mere Christianity uh, and one was The Screwtape Letters. And uh, you made an interesting comment. You said that uh, although you read both books, it was The Screwtape Letters that really grabbed your attention and arrested you, not the traditional apologetic book that Lewis wrote that he's so famous for, Mere Christianity. So I wonder if, looking back now, why do you think it was that it wasn't the apologetics book that first arrested your attention and even your heart, it was this other book? Right. I think it's because the Screwtape Letters speaks to very existential questions. In other words, what does it mean to be human, to have uh, to be dealing with a moral law, to deal with guilt and shame and all the things that we struggle with as human beings. I think people, when they when they hear that apologetics has to be about truth and facts and evidence, then they often are turned off because they say it doesn't speak to the emotional side of life, the relational side of life. That's a valid point. But, and that's why in the rest of my book, I try to also connect the intellectual arguments to our response. How should that make us behave? How should it make us uh, uh, rejoice? How should it make us worship? And so I think the Screwtape Letters is an example of how when you address those deep questions from a Christian perspective, it's no, it's not the same as giving evidence that, say, Christianity is true, but it shows that Christianity is true uh, nonetheless, because it's, it's, it's resonating with our experiences. We say, oh, that's why I feel that way. Those are why I have the temptations I do. In a way, and that's the reason that does resonate with our experiences because Christianity is objectively true. I think Chesterton said that if you find a key that fits uh, the lock of the human heart, maybe that key was made by the, the lock maker. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the same way, when Christians are, are saying what's true, what people recognize as true, that gives credibility to the Christian message. Mm. So I guess when I think of the term apologetics, I, I, would, I would define it maybe as just making the case for... Christianity, for belief in God and in the gospel and in all that that entails. Um, Are the arguments ever existential in nature as well, where you're not necessarily trying to prove a truth claim per se, but you're you're making a different kind of argument that does appeal more to our feelings or to um, aesthetic kinds of issues? Is that a part of apologetics as well? Yeah, and actually I would say that existential arguments are making truth claims. In fact, for example, if I said to you, if I made an argument and the premise was that you should feel revolted by ice cream, that was the, that was I said that feeling of being of revulsion towards ice cream is why Christianity is true. And you said it makes no sense. I love ice cream and it's a good <laughs> thing, and everybody does. That's actually a fal- fair point. If Christianity speaks to a reality that's not real, well, then you reason to doubt it. On the other hand, but conversely, if Christianity can explain things like your moral emotions. If it can explain your longing, if it can explain the things that you feel deep in your heart, well, that's evidence Christianity is true. Now, again, we have to be careful because there can be a placebo effect. Our hearts are wicked and deceitful. And so sometimes we can have felt needs that are not real needs. So we can't always trust our feelings or emotions. But if Christianity is true, then we have to believe that at our deepest level, God is speaking to, uh, to that deep, deep truths in our heart. And whether it's a longing for eternity whether it's a longing for truth, whether it's a, a recognition of good and evil, whether it's feelings of guilt and shame, all the, the Christian worldview addresses all those things. And then, therefore, if we talk about those feelings and those experiences, that gives the Christian worldview credibility. 
Mm. So how did you first get into doing apologetics? So you became a Christian, and, and, and then you kind of took that step at some point in your life to actually looking to engage with unbelievers and convince them through evidences, through argumentation of the truth of what we say we believe. So how did you, you make that shift? It was interesting. I uh, became a Christian in graduate school, and I, I never really got deeply into apologetics at first, just uh, with my colleagues. I'd read a few books. I read like The Case for Christ, Mere Christianity. So I kind of had a sense that this was a thing that Christians did. And of course, I'm a PhD student at UC Berkeley. So I was surrounded by very, very brilliant colleagues and other students. But I remember that I got into apologetics initially because I was invited uh, by a, a former a friend from high school I hadn't seen in a while, but he he emailed me I think and said you got to come on to my friend's blog and debate him because he's an atheist. He went to Yale, he became an atheist, and you have to debate him, and he'll show you that Christianity is not true. <laughs> so I, I so, went, okay, so this friend who was inviting you to do this, he wasn't a Christian, and he was trying to convince you. Yeah, he to... was now an atheist. They'd both grown up mm. in sort of a sort of a strange Christian sect, um, and then they both had become atheists. And so he said, "Come on to my my Yale educated friend's blog." And he'll talk you out of the, all this religion stuff. So I went on this guy's blog, and we were we, we both well I found out quickly was that we were both completely unprepared to have this discussion. <laughs> so what I, what I did do, which I thought was very helpful, and I've kind of followed this a route ever since, is that he recommended a book that I read, and that I recommended a book that he should read. And so I read the book he recommended. I remember was Robert Price's book, The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man, and Robert Price is one of the I think two. Uh, two Jesus mythicists with PhDs in the world. So he believed mm. Jesus was a mythical figure. So he, Not he, just a historical person who was kind of blown out of proportion. Yeah, he believes it's actually purely fi- you know, fictional. And so I read this book, and I remember my wife and I just laughing because the arguments were so insane. But it was an expo- it exposed me to the this world of, this is a new atheist movement at the time, this was in 2000 and three or four maybe. So New Atheism was a big deal. Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Daniel Dennett. But it exposed me to that world. And when I read that book, I thought to myself, wow, these, these arguments are actually not very good. Uh, I, I expected to be kind of blown away because I wasn't familiar with it. And I read it and I was like, well, these, this is actually, Christianity is actually defensible. And then around that time too, uh, a group of Christian students at UC Berkeley created a, uh, a club that was dedicated to bringing atheists and Christians together to talk about religion. And so I went to some of their meetings, and I gave a talk to the atheist group about quantum mechanics. And I remember sitting down with the president of the Berkeley Atheist Society, I forget what it was called. I think it was called, uh, there's some funny name they gave to it, SANE, Students for a Non-Religious Ethos. SANE was the acronym. Mm. But we sat. I sat down with them, I think we were having coffee somewhere, and um, he said to me something like, you know, I would believe in God if I could just find one example of a clear, undisputed miracle. Just one. Only what all would take is for me, that, and I would believe in God. So I sort of thought for five minutes, one minute, and I said, wait a minute. You want, like, an example of the laws of physics totally breaking down and, and we can't explain it by any natural means? He said, yeah, just one. And I said, well, what about the Big Bang, the beginning of the universe? No one, literally, that's, this is described as a point at which the laws of physics break down. We don't, we don't know where it came from, what caused it, nothing. And he kind of sits there and he thinks to himself, he goes, huh. <laughs> and I thought to myself, now I, I had not read apologetics formally, but just off the top of my head, I was like, wait a minute, is it this easy? 
Now, obviously, there are lots of arguments there and people go back and forth, philosophers do. But again, I was, I was shocked by how some of these natural questions uh, were, com- were not being answered, were not being communicated to the atheist community. And again, they might still argue and say, well, no, there's ways around that. But I just thought I should spend more time studying these issues and then communicate these simple answers to my colleagues. So that's how mm-hmm. I got into the field. So I think one of the maybe assumptions that Christians can have, especially if we haven't done much apologetics ourselves, haven't had those conversations directly, is that anyone who isn't a Christian, and certainly someone who would claim to be an atheist or even an agnostic, that they, um, they've they heard all the arguments before, and they've thought through them carefully, and they're ready with their counter-arguments. They're ready you know, with, to debunk the things that we, we think we believe. What has been your experience? Have have atheists? Let's just stick with the atheists you've you've interacted with. Have they been maybe surprisingly open to discussions about this stuff? Do they like talking about these things with you and with other Christians, or do you find that there's hostility there? I think it depends. I know in my experience as a scientist in my lab, for example, we wouldn't talk about religion frequently, but when we did, people were open. They were not antagonistic. They did often challenge me and push back, but. Again, in my experience, they often weren't prepared to think about these arguments. They hadn't thought about them before. They'd sort of taken for granted that everyone who's the scientist was an atheist. And when then you challenge them, uh, well, not challenge them, but then you ask these questions, they were surprised that they were asking questions that they hadn't really considered or, or raising points they hadn't considered. And uh, I remember um, a woman in my lab actually asked me some question about some like, sort of gotcha question about the problem of evil. And I forget my answer, but she kind of pauses and she goes, well, of course you have an answer for that. And I kind of thought to myself, well, wait, wait, why did you ask the question if you didn't want an answer? But it just, mm. again, it, it struck home the point that drove home the point that, um, no, most people, Christian and non-Christian, are not prepared to have these conversations. I mean, ask the average Christian, why do you believe Christianity is true? They don't really know. They couldn't give you a five-minute answer. They couldn't go into the details of the Kalam cosmological argument or the argument from fine-tuning or the moral argument. They might be able to point you to the Bible and to Jesus, maybe the trilemma, like Lewis's argument about Jesus claiming to be God. Uh, But other than that, they haven't studied this issue very much, and neither have most atheists. And so, well, that's good. We can can kind of learn together if we need to and walk them through a conversation. You know, people like relationality. Well, there you go. I invite them to read a book that you enjoy and invite, and then you can offer to read a book that they enjoy and talk about them. So let's take a step back there. You said that probably if you were to guess, most Christians haven't kind of thought about some of these issues and and wouldn't have ready answers to some of these questions or certainly wouldn't be able to articulate some of these arguments in, in support of faith in God. Is that a problem in your mind? You know, even for a Christian who maybe isn't going to ever be out there, you know, on a stage debating someone or online debating someone, should Christians know some of these things, whether or not they would ever use them in a quote-unquote apologetic context? I think every Christian should—well, one, this is just an obvious answer, but everyone, every Christian should be biblically literate. And I'd say that—I don't want to exaggerate, but 80 to 90 percent of your apologetics problems or, or will, will be—I um, don't know if he's solved—will be greatly simplified if you have a firm theological grounding— Hmm. Uh, think, th- why do you say that? Well, questions like the problem of evil. If God exists, why does evil exist? That's 
okay, that's so-called apologetics, but how could you not have considered that as a Christian, right? I mean, mm. there are whole books of the Bible dedicated to that question. I don't understand how you could read the Bible and books like Job or Revelation and, and, and not wrestle with the question, well, why do bad things happen when there's, um, God is so good? You, 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 how do you avoid thinking about that your entire Christian life? And so mm. if Christians had simply a good theological grounding and biblical literacy, they could answer many of these questions just from their intuitive theological stance, right? Um, so that's one thing that I think we could all benefit from is simply good biblical theology. Uh, in terms of these more intellectual arguments about uh, the origin of the universe or um, the moral argument, uh, um, I do think Christians should be able to give a reason for the hope that we have in us. In mean, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 say that, be, you know, be prepared to give a reason defense for anyone who asks for the hope that is in you. So that's a command. So if, if someone asks you, why are you a Christian? You should not just fumble and have no answer. You should have some answer to, for them. Uh, and that's why I think apologetics is going to be, again, you don't all have to be experts in philosophy or ancient history or textual criticism, but we all have to be able to explain why we are Christians, why it's a rational belief, why it makes sense, why it's a true belief. And that's for all of us. Hmm. I wonder if you could share um, two things. What, what's been your best experience in doing apologetics? Like what's a, a, maybe a circumstance that you remember, a time that you were sharing about your faith, answering objections that was like stood, stands out as a really successful or encouraging thing, whatever that means? And then what would be an example of like a really terrible experience that you had where maybe you, you dropped the ball in a big way or you, you didn't have an answer and you were just so stumped? Uh, I wonder if you could share two of those examples. I think one of the more interesting ones, and this is not exactly apologetics, but it sort of makes the point that um, apologetics is about more than just uh, deductive logic. But I got a DM on Twitter a few months ago from a guy, and I... These days, I mainly write and read and think about a thing called critical theory. So I talk a lot about race and racism and justice and how to think about those issues biblically. But I wasn't, that's not, I prefer to do straight up apologetics and talk about Jesus and the Bible and, and the gospel. But I got a DM from a guy on Twitter who said, who asked me questions about race and racism and stuff. But he said, oh, and by the way, I, I became a Christian because of you. I was like, what? And listen, and he's like, yeah, I was uh, an atheist at a secular college that was that was really going off the rails in terms of how they were thinking about uh, race and racism. And I was sort of conservative politically, but I so I was resisting that those ideas. I didn't know how to, and so I I looked at one of your talks and you explained these ideas, but you were a Christian. And I didn't really understand that. But he so he kept reading my material, and at one point he listened to a talk in which I was discussing racism and the history of slavery and lynching in the U.S. And during the talk, I got really emotional. I started crying. And he said, that shocked me. And it really just broke me because he's like, as an atheist, I couldn't explain why racism was wrong. I knew it was, but I had no way to explain why it was wrong. To hear a Christian who both is passionate about addressing these issues biblically and truthfully, but also is emotionally uh, abhors racism and loves his neighbor, that was perplexing to me. And so he became a Christian through that. And I was just amazed, again, that... So apologetics is more than just this intellectual exercise that runs through arguments, premises, and conclusions, and inductive logic. It can also speak to 
current events and, and thinking about those things biblically because when when non-Christians see that a biblical framework answers all these questions and explain gives gives their life meaning and purpose, but also addresses hot topics like race and gender and sexuality in a way that they recognize is true, well, that lends credibility to Christianity. Mm. Um, what about negative experiences? I'm trying to think. Uh, I'm trying to think of some. Um, I do think there have been many times, probably more than I probably remember. I probably blocked them that, but I think <laughs> that there are times when I have felt like um, the discussion sort of got away from me. Like I got too caught up in the abstract philosophical debate and didn't, not that I was mean, but I, I always try to bring the discussion back to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Whatever I'm talking about, I don't want to leave it at, well, if you accept premise one and premise two, then the conclusion logically follows. And that shouldn't be our end goal in those discussions. And so I think when I've had discussions where I felt like, man, yes, I maybe gave a good reason for what I believe, but I didn't bring it back to Jesus. I think that's always the thing I remind myself. That's always the goal. The goal is always to bring it back to the cross, the resurrection, because that's, that's why we do this. Well, and that relates to then another question I had for you, which is how do you incorporate the the belief as a Christian that you have, that we all have as Christians, that uh, unbelievers, their most fundamental problem is that their their minds are darkened and that they are they are dead in their sins, as the Bible tells us. And so there's a sense in which they cannot believe, they, do, they cannot understand without the Holy Spirit regenerating their hearts and awakening them to the beauty and the truth of the gospel. So how does that reality impact how you go about actually doing apologetics? It, it definitely should. So like I said, I think theology has to, perhaps has to precede apologetics. You should, you should always start with a good theological grounding and, and you know, my understanding of the Bible is that, yes, uh, non-Christians are dead in sin, like I once was, where our minds are darkened before we come to Christ, and we can't believe, we can't understand the things of the Spirit. <clears throat> so then people will often say, well, see, so that's why apologetics is useless, because you'll never convince anyone. You can't argue anyone into the kingdom. And I say, that's fair, that's true, but by the same reasoning, you can't preach anyone into the kingdom. And you can't love anyone into the kingdom. And you can't serve anyone into the kingdom. It's all, those are all true, right? According to our theology. And so, but what's the answer then? Well, the answer is God uses means. God uses many means. There are many means through which God brings people into the kingdom, whether it's apologetics or whether it's preaching or whether it's showing people love. So whether or not we're giving people a logical deductive argument for Christianity, whether or not we are preaching people, expositing the Bible, whether or not we are loving people in Jesus' name, those are all means God uses to awaken faith in people's hearts. And again, it never can be divorced from the biblical truth, from the actual message of Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead, but those are all ways in which we can share, communicate that truth credibly. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, 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 I do think we have to, but we should approach these arguments thinking that Nothing is going to happen without the work of the Holy Spirit. No matter how persuasive I am, no matter how rational I am, no matter how winsome I am, nothing will bring their heart to life apart from the Holy Spirit's work. And so the good thing is that that takes the pressure off of us. We don't have to say, oh man, I didn't, I didn't do enough. I didn't try hard enough. I, I wasn't winsome enough. Well, no, the, the goal is simply to say what's true 
then to trust that God would, would bless the work that you've done. Hmm. Well, let's take a look at a couple examples of apologetic arguments that you you highlight in the book, kind of walk your readers through. I just want to pick out two of them, and maybe to start with one that you've already kind of mentioned a couple times, uh, that argument from morality, from these uh, relatively universal moral values and principles and intuitions that we have, uh, and you would say that those can serve as a proof of God's existence. How so? So the moral argument's been used for a long time. Uh, the formulation that I use is pretty standard today among popular apologists, but William Lane Craig's done a lot of work on it, and it just basically says if God does not exist, then objective moral facts don't exist. There are no moral values. Objectively, there are no moral duties. There's no good or evil or right or wrong. That's if God doesn't exist. But then, number two, objective moral facts do exist. There are things that are objectively right or wrong, independent of what you believe or I believe or culture believes or everyone in the whole world believes. They're just objectively true. They're like facts, like gravity is an objective physical fact. It just exists. It's there. doesn't matter if we all reject gravity. It's a fact. <laughs> so, but if God, if, if God doesn't exist, then there are no objective moral facts, but there are objective moral facts, then the logical conclusion is there must be a God. And a certain kind of God, not just a generic spirit that's it's outside of morality. It has to be a God that can explain why certain things are right and wrong and good and evil. And C.S. Lewis taught, does this extensively in his book, Mere Christianity. The, the basic argument is the moral argument. Um, and so what I do in the book is I go beyond sort of Lewis's presentation. I, I look at the ways in which modern atheists have avoided those one or, one or both of the premises. So they might say, well, no, we can have morality without God. Or they might say, no, actually, there is no morality. So there, is, there are two options for them. They can either deny the first or second premise. And I go through each of their justifications for denying premise one or premise two. And I basically show that, number one, they're, in, they're often inconsistent with how they live. They live as if there are objective moral facts, uh, even if they claim there aren't. And then if they say, well, those facts aren't grounded in a god, a supernatural creator, there's something else that explains them. I show the problems philosophically with, with doing that. And a common example would be something like, how do you weight the good of the, the many versus the good of the few? If something you know, is, uh, will benefit and make lots of people flourish but will cause a lot of pain to one person, well, what's the trade-off then? How do you adjudicate those issues where you, you are trying to balance people's happinesses? Um, and that's a problem for a lot of secular morality. So I get a, this, it's all very intellectual, but I, I really like the moral argument because it is it grabs you. It's something you deal with daily. You have to decide every single day when you wake up, will I live morally or immorally? Will I, will I live a selfish life or will I lay down my life and do what I know is right? That's not this abstract question. It's, it's a daily thing we wrestle with as human beings. And what's more, as Lewis points out, we daily fail to live up to our own standards. So I think it's one of the arguments that you can't put aside and say, oh, it's just this crazy ethereal idea I kind of toy with occasionally. No, literally every moment, every decision you make is influenced by your view of morality. Well, and that's the power of it for interacting with unbelievers is that they there's this experiential reality to it that they know what it is to feel guilty about mm -hmm. something. They know what it is to feel uh, morally compelled to do something good uh, and to stand up against evil. Uh, but I wonder how you would respond to someone who, you know, I, I, this makes me think of Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous mm -hmm. Mind, and his whole point in the book, he's kind of speaking from an evolutionary perspective, 
but he, he makes the case that uh, our moral intuitions, those kind of gut moral reactions to things, some of them, you know, these big, these big kind of almost universal moral truths that we would feel, you know, that killing a, a child uh, would be wrong and horrible, that those moral intuitions are often uh, just so immediate. And then we kind of, we, f- we follow up on those with these rationalizations that we create in our minds almost unconsciously to kind of justify those intuitions. So how does that, how would something like that, someone saying that, you know, we, we feel like these are universal moral truths, but we see evidence that um, our morality is, is uh, and our reasons for our morality are often kind of just created after the fact. And it's, it's, it's actually very conditional based on who we're, at, who we're around and the culture that we're in and, and all of that. What would you say to that? Right. It's a great book, by the way. The uh, Hate's book, The Righteous Mind, is an excellent book. I recommend everyone just read it. It's, it's really fascinating. I discuss evolutionary objections to the moral argument in the in the chapter I wrote, I wrote on this. And people will use that both ways. They either say, well, see, uh, evolution explains why we can get morality without God. It's all just been shaped by evolution. And it, but it points to the way that we're, we've evolved. That's what morality is. It's our evolutionary intuition. And Or they could say, actually, that shows why morality is false, because it's mm-hmm. just this illusion. And the funny thing right. is, again, C.S. Lewis addressed that very, those very claims in mere Christianity. It's not a new argument. People have been saying this for, years yeah, ago. <laughs> for a long time. And Darwin talked about the evolutionary origins of morality. So but I just say this. I say, number one, you can't show that morality is false because it, even if it evolved, it doesn't prove it's false. The same way, our, our grasp of mathematics, our grasp of science, grasp of the law of gravity, that's supposedly evolutionary. Like we, we can understand all these like mathematics and science because we have these cognitive faculties that evolved. But does it prove, therefore, that the law of gravity is false? Well, no, it's still there, out there. We just we perceive it. We, 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 uh, so we grasp it through these cognitive faculties that supposedly evolved does not prove, therefore, it is uh, therefore an illusion. So that's number mm, one. You can't yeah. show it evolved, therefore it's an illusion. But then I say, okay, but let's take that approach. Some people say, well, that's right. See, it is an illusion, though. You're admitting that it's an illusion. So how do you explain that? And I say, well, here's the thing. You don't live like it is. And now imagine that there are uh, some other, we have other tendencies, intuitions that we just all have as human beings. So for example, human beings seem to be innately afraid of the dark. Uh, babies are scared of loud noises. Uh, we see faces in, in random objects. Like we just tend to, our, our, our brains are primed to recognize, to have certain patterns. But if, let's say that we had all those, we have all these natural tendencies, <clears throat> but let's say that one of those intuitive tendencies, like the like the, the fear of the dark, say, uh, that were that was impeding my happiness. It was making me miserable. It means I couldn't go out at night and have fun. If that if I and if I were aware, well that fear of the dark is not real. It's an illusion. It's been foisted upon you by your evolutionary history. If I knew that, well, as an adult, I would work to to erode that fear. I would go to therapy. I'd do you know little exercises at home to train myself that no, fear of the dark is irrational and I'd work to eradicate that fear. But here's the thing. People that claim that, oh, your moral intuition is purely an illusion. It's been foisted upon you by evolution. You don't need it. It's not real. But they would be horrified if you sat down every day and worked to eradicate your moral intuition. 
Imagine someone who'd achieved this state of complete amorality, where they had no mm, more intuition yeah. at all, they had no more guilt or shame. They they could do whatever they wanted to without fear or guilt, but they chose not to for, for self-interested reasons. But that kind of person is still a monster. If they could yeah. murder innocent people for fun and enjoy it and not feel any shame, you wouldn't want to be that person. But why? They've achieved what you claim is the ideal yeah. rational state. But we, yeah, we, so have, yeah. we have a name for those people in our culture. Yeah, psychopaths. Yeah, they're called psychopaths, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's so, so good. Uh, what about another uh, argument that you, you actually already kind of alluded to a little bit? Uh, it's very interesting. This argument from mathematics, that somehow math itself sort of testifies to the truth of God's existence. Unpack that for us. Sure, we live in a, in a universe with a deeply mathematical structure. Talk to any physicist or even chemist, biologist, will recognize that in math is the language of God. It's really the, the, the way we understand and we, we can perceive that there is objectively a rational mathematical order to the universe. And you can see this in a lot of the early founders of modern physics like Albert Einstein, uh, Eugenia Wigner, they recognized that there was this deep underlying mathematical structure and they looked for it. They expected to see that the equations governing physics were not just real, but beautiful. That was, it's part of the, now it's not the only test for, for a theory's truth, but generally speaking as a scientist, we look for beauty in the equations that govern the universe. But I ask the question in my book, why is that the case? I mean, I read a lot of, um, I, I read science fiction books, and one of my favorite authors is Brandon Sanderson, who's actually a Mormon. But in his books, he, often, he loves delving into alternative realities where there's an alternative set laws of nature. They follow mm. certain rules. And he builds entire worlds and realities around these rules of basically magic, what looks like magic to us, but it, it follows rules. But even he has that, understanding that yeah, the universe ought to be beautiful and have reasons behind it. But if you think about it, that doesn't really, why? I mean, contrast Brandon Sanderson's novels where there's this, there's this deep backstory and these deep underlying rules, even to his magic. Contrast that with something like C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Now, I love those books. I think they're great. But there's just no rhyme or reason. There's just random things yeah. happen. They can't explain. The magic just happens. Or Harry Potter, too. You read Harry Potter sometimes, you're like, this is just a plot device. <laughs> yeah, she, she made it up to fit what she wanted to happen. Exactly. Next. So, but here's the question. Why do we live in a universe that has this deep underlying rationality and mathematical structure and not in a universe that looks like it was created by J.K. Rowling to fit, to hmm. fill some plot device or, you know, that just things just happen unaccountably. There's an explanation for them. Why? And... I, so and then and then second of all, that's number one. We live in this universe with a deep underlying mathematical structure. But but more than that, we can uniquely perceive that as human beings. I mean, other animals, like we're an animal, we're a rational animal. But other animals don't understand. They can't see the structure that's there. They might learn things in some sense. You know, birds can be taught to like tie knots in in twigs and and build nests and things. But they don't understand quantum mechanics. They don't understand uh, uh, genetics. They don't. So how come human beings uniquely can perceive that underlying structure? So we have two, these two mathematical, these two phenomenon. And again, Eugenia Wigner actually wrote a paper on that subject saying those are miracles. It makes no sense. And I'm not even sure if he was a theist or not. I don't know. But he recognized it's extremely odd that we live in a mathematical universe and that too we can perceive that fact unlike all these other intelligent animals. So I'm arguing, well, 
that doesn't make sense if you're an atheist. Why would there be this structure and why would we be able to perceive it uniquely? But as a Christian, I can say, ah, it's because God himself is the is the is a mind who created the universe and he made us in his image to be able to uniquely perceive his handiwork in a way that other animals could not. Hmm. So it means to be in the, in the image of God. I wonder if you could uh, maybe put on your uh, your atheist hat and uh, give us what would be the best argument against belief in God that you've encountered. And then how would you, putting your apologetics hat back on, your Christian hat back on, how would you then respond to that? I think the the best argument against Christianity, ironically, see, people often will conflate the two. They'll argue against Christianity and think they're arguing against God. And they, they, obviously, if for the Christian God is true, we want to put people in Christianity. That's fair. But they'll often say things like, well, uh, how can you, can you believe that God exists, say, if the, the universe is older than 6,000 years? I'm saying, well, okay, you can ask that question, but what you're really asking is, how do you know the Bible's inerrant? How do you know the Bible is uh, have errors in it? I can answer that question. I'm an inerrantist. But don't confuse these objections about, say, the Bible with objections about God existing, or even about Christianity. Um, because I think, again, I am an inerrantist. I think it's an important doctrine. And yet, don't confuse believing the Bible is inerrant with, say, being a Christian or believing in Jesus. They, you know, mm. Even the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy said, no, there are Christians who are not inerrantists. Um, and so I, I just want to distinguish between those two objections. So the best argument against God's existence, though, uh, and I would think is the problem of hit, divine hiddenness. This issue of, well, if God really does love us and God is a good God, then why doesn't he reveal himself? And the problem of evil, I think, is also a big one, but I think actually, for reasons I go into in the book, it's, it's less, um, I think, troubling, not troubling, but it's less problematic than the problem of why does God hide himself? Mm. And But again, this is where I think good theology can help us explain these questions, answer these questions. What I would say is that, uh, that question assumes that if we had more evidence, our problems would be solved. But the Bible says, no, your problem is not that you lack evidence. Your problem is you hate God. Your problem is that you are in, at enmity with God. You wish he didn't exist. And therefore, all the evidence in the world can't remove that hatred. Now, in other words, if I, uh, if I say, well, I don't believe in Lord Voldemort, right? The villain from Harry Potter. I don't believe in him. Uh, give me more evidence. If someone gave me evidence that Voldemort existed, I would say, great. But now I loathe this Voldemort who exists. I thought he was just a fictional character. Now I realize, oh, he's real. Oh, I loathe him even more. So in the same way, if our fundamental problem is that we do not like the fact there's a God, we want to be our own gods, then hiddenness is not a big problem because it just says, look, God has not given you all the evidence he could. He'd give you more evidence that wouldn't solve your problem. Hmm. So why, why blame God for not giving you things you don't need? What you really need is a change of heart. Now then you ask, well, why can't God change my heart? Ah, and that's why I, that's where I transition to the gospel. God has given a way for your heart to be changed, but it's not through the Kalam cosmological argument. It's not through reasoning and uh, about these abstract ideas. It's through the cross. God has made a way for us to have our, our hearts changed, and it's through embracing what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So again, that's a good, it's a great transition in my book from, from saying, look, these intellectual problems that we've been wrestling with for, for, you know, 150 pages, they're ultimately solved, not primarily in a better argument, but in the gospel. 
And that's what's going to ultimately convince you that Christianity is not just true, but worth embracing. Give me a fun question to, to see if what answers you come <laughs> up with here for this. What are some apologetic arguments that Christians should not use? Maybe things that you've heard Christians say, or you've read Christians to promote, that you think do not use that with an unbeliever. Yeah, I anything anything that anything that uh, relies on science that you don't really understand, I would not use. Hmm. Right now, we tricky here because I'm not a cosmologist, but I talk about the argument from fine tuning in my book. That's fair, but I am a theoretical chemist, so I can kind of grasp <laughs> these arguments are, and I can read the literature, you know, the primary literature myself. But I occasionally will see memes that talk about how, like, some protein is in the shape of a cross. I'm like, please don't do that. Like, I just, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not a biologist, but I think sometimes that it's almost like, like, almost magic. You're appealing to yeah. it's like, well, look, it's a picture, and it's, and it, I, I, and it comes from, I saw it online, and it looks good. It seems convincing. I'd be very skeptical because, uh, especially because those, those almost are always not true, and that undermines your credibility with a non-Christian, especially, and unfortunately, a lot of times, you know, non-scientists share with other non-scientists, and so they never get called out for that, but when a scientist sees that and is like, this has got not true, remotely true, well, then they're going to say, oh, gosh, this is such a naive and silly belief, and again, mm. they're not, they're not just scoffing at you, they're scoffing at a bad argument, which is yeah. valid, uh, the same thing goes for all of these weird numerological things in the Bible. Like if you put the following Hebrew letters in the, there was a whole Bible code thing that went on about 10, 15 years ago. I never got it. I never even read it, but it, it apparently was trying to show that like the Bibles, the numbers in the Bible predict the future. And I'm like, this is, this is almost like witchcraft. <laughs> it's like a cult. What is this? The Bible's words, read the words. Don't try to find these hidden, you know, secret decoder ring messages in it. Um, <laughs> And, and I think just in general, what I try to do is don't speak outside your area of expertise. Uh, I don't mean PhD expertise, but I'm, I'm just saying yeah. if you haven't read at least like one or two or three books about some subject, don't start spouting off about it like you're an expert. Do a little bit of reading. And what I say too is I recommend asking questions rather than saying, telling people, here's what is true. Why don't you ask them what do you believe is true? And then, or invite them to read a book with you and alongside of you. We'll both read about it and talk about it. Because um, that often will prevent you from sticking your foot in your mouth and saying things that are just obviously false. You're like, well, we're, we're talking about some subject that we both have access to through this book, say. Maybe as a final question, Neil, uh, I wonder if you could speak to the person uh, who this would accurately describe them. That, that if they were being honest with themselves, they would say that they, they feel very intimidated by the thought of doing apologetics, of having these... Uh, explicitly apologetic conversations with unbelievers who they know are going to challenge them and have questions for them. And, and it's not necessarily just because they would be f fearful of being judged or rejected by them as, as silly Christians, but they actually feel like they're kind of scared to hear the questions themselves because they are not sure that their own faith would survive that kind of argumentation. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to the person who would say that that's, that's them right now? So one thing is, is that there are two tasks of the apologist. One is to um, show people, show non-Christians that the gospel is credible, that it's intellectually uh, sound and true. But the other task of the apologist, I think I'm getting from Tim McGrew, by the way, as a philosopher. But the other task is for Christians to equip Christians to be confident in their own beliefs. And you see in Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4, Luke himself says, here are the reasons 
I'm writing this whole gospel so that you can be certain of the things you've been taught. So mm -hmm. for people who are scared and say, well, I don't want to talk to a skeptic because they might make me doubt. I say, well, that's something to be ashamed of. Even, even Theophilus, you know, the, the Luke's audience was, had to be instructed in why he should be confident in these beliefs. So in the same way, if you feel that way, well, but don't sit on your hands, don't hide, read these books, read some books about apologetics, understand why Christians believe what they believe and why it's, why it's true so that you can be confident in what you believe. It's, there's no shame in that. And, mm. uh, and again, one of the things I say in the book is that the best argument for Christianity, and I really mean this, is the gospel itself, that the news that, uh, that well, the recognition that we're sinners who needs a savior, that is unique to Christianity. And if that's your deepest experience, that you are a sinner who needs rescue, if you, you feel helpless and hopeless, and you know that in the core of your soul, and Christianity then is the only option for you. There's nothing else out there that says that your problem has been solved once and for all, and you can trust that God will rescue you. Th that's the best argument that Christianity is true because no other religion is out there for you. It's like, I, I, you know, uh, if I'm a, a man in a desert and I know I'm going to die without water and I see an oasis and I see a lake and this back of my mind says, well, you know, maybe it's a mirage. I say, well, who cares? Maybe it is, but maybe it's not. And there's no other hope for me. So I'm going to, I'm going to walk in that direction no matter what. Well, the same way, if I know I need a rescuer, well, there's only one that's Jesus. And so you might as well die at the foot of the cross and die elsewhere. And of course, you're not going to die. You're going to live. So that's what I tell Christians is be confident in that message. And then everything else, in some sense, you can hold it. Well, not everything else, but I think that will give us a lot of confidence in addressing these issues. Mm. Neil, thank you so much for helping us to, yeah, maybe have a little bit more confidence today in uh, this work of doing apologetics and understanding these things and, and for ultimately pointing us to that beautiful gospel. Great. Thanks, Matt. That was Neil Shenvey on Defending Our Faith with Sound Reasons. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.